Uh, we're going to be starting a new series this morning, a series called The Blessed Life. This is a life that I bet every single one of us would like to live as a life that's full of blessing, a life that is characterized and known as a blessed life. We're going to be spending our time in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew is the first gospel of the New Testament, and we're going to spend really the next few months in this particular chapter walking through the Beatitudes, which are the prelude really to the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to spend the next few weeks, certainly maybe even the next few months in this book. So go ahead and mark it, get familiar with it, that's where we'll be. But you know, when you come to the book of Matthew, really the context of Matthew as a book can preach a sermon. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but the Old Testament closes with the book of Malachi. And when the Old Testament closes, the curtain kind of closes with it. And, and our world enters into 400 years of silence. So you have the people of God who are anxiously awaiting the presence of, uh, you, you know, anticipating the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now they're getting this feeling of hopelessness. This feeling of hopelessness. I mean, just imagine if you were waiting for something to happen generation after generation after generation after generation. Really, five or six different generations go by, and there's not a scripture spoken. There's not a prophet prophesying. Like, all you have to cling on to is something that was written 400 plus years ago. At some point in your life, you start to grow a little bit hopeless. You start to feel a little sorrow. You start to feel a little depression maybe creeping in, certainly some anxiousness starting to creep in. And that's how the Old Testament closes. And it enters into this years of years upon years of silence. And then the Gospel of Matthew is the curtain opening again. And God's going to start speaking again. And as the curtain opens, the light of the world steps into the middle of this darkness. And that's what the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 is all about. And you can imagine the people of God were probably on the edges of their seats because this is like a climatic experience for them. Holy cow, Jesus did come. He is here. And now they're going to get to see him live the life that he came to live and even go die the death that he came to die. And he did it so that you and I could have life in him forever. So here in the Gospel of Matthew, the light of the world is invading 400 years of darkness. And some of you... Over the past few days, maybe the past few weeks, maybe the past few years, you've been experiencing some darkness of your own. Some of you, you might have walked in this room today feeling the same feelings that maybe some of the people of old felt. Maybe you have been feeling feelings like depression and feelings like hopelessness and feelings like anxiousness. Because quite frankly, you see how your world is starting to unravel a little bit. And the same truth that held true for these men and women in Matthew holds true for you and I today. The same light of the world that came and invaded the circumstances of their lives has come to invade the circumstances of yours too. So when you walk in here and you're looking for hope, you're looking and grasping at, at really at air, just trying to find something that will satisfy, something that will fill. The Gospel of Matthew as a book speaks about the light of the world invading that territory of your heart, bringing to you what you've been searching for. So just alone, the gospel of the book of Matthew can preach a sermon. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. And if you remember the first few chapters of Matthew, you have Jesus who was born. And then you have Jesus who was baptized. And then you have Jesus who starts this ministry. He is 
healing people, he's raising people from the dead, and he's doing all of these miraculous things, but most importantly what he's doing is he's, he's proving to be the Messiah, the Son of God, the, the, the one that people have waited for for hundreds upon hundreds of years. So he's saving people, he's calling people to himself, and then he starts to get this great following of people wanting to hear from him and listen to him as he speaks. So as the masses begin to follow, what Jesus does is he leads them to a hillside. And he has them sit down at the bottom of this hill and he goes a little bit above them and he sits down there and he starts to teach them really his most popular sermon. As I've already told you, it's the Sermon on the Mount. And the prelude to that sermon, the introduction to that sermon is a section of scripture that we call the Beatitudes. And every Beatitude begins, there's about eight or nine of them, begins the same way. Blessed is. This is what the blessed life looks like. This is what you and I are striving for. But I want to warn you out of the gate here this morning, okay? The warning I want to give you is that the, the things that we think bring blessing into life are not the things that Scripture's going to speak of. In fact, every beatitude is countercultural to the way that we live. So the challenge to you as you begin to dive into this, is the challenge to me is I've begun to dive into this, was, was, was the same. I have to go into this with an open hands, with open heart. And I have to say to the Lord, Lord, I know that everything you're about to say to me is not going to be warmly received. Because my natural instinct is to do things the way that I think they should be done. And the same thing is going to be happening with you. So my prayer for us as a church is that as we approach this text of Scripture, that we'll go with open hands, open hearts, and we'll say, Lord, we want to hear from you. Transform us, change us. Even if we resist it, work hard to change us and allow your word to be planted deeply into our hearts. So we're going to read together Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12 this morning. We're only going to focus on the first beatitude that's found in verse 3, but we're going to read them all together so you can get familiar with what they are. But what I want to challenge you to do, maybe today, okay, Maybe it's 40 degrees, you don't want to be outside, you're going to sit in your living room this afternoon, maybe in the recliner, some of you, okay, now listen, there's no football on today, you have no excuse, so maybe what you can do is you can take out your Bible and read the whole Sermon on the Mount. It's really chapters 5, 6, and 7, just read through the whole thing and get familiar with the context. It's a fascinating sermon that Jesus is preaching, I promise it will bless your heart to do so, but we're just going to read the Beatitudes today. And over the next few months, we're going to explore them one by one. This is what it says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. It says, Seeing the crowds, he, talking about Jesus, went up on a mountain. And when he sat down, he, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. And this is the sermon. He said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what we're going to talk about today. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's what we're going to talk about next week. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We need more men and women who hunger and thirst for righteousness, don't we, church? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It doesn't say blessed are the judgmental. We're really good at that. But it says blessed are the merciful. For they're the ones who will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. We need more peacemakers, don't we? We have a lot of pot stirrers, right? We need more peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, by the way, notice verse 3 begins, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, on the back end of verse 3. Notice verse 10 ends the same way, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's called a bookend. Um, It's actually called an inclusio. Okay, so everything here is like a sandwich. You have two pieces of bread and the meat in the center. This is all one thought. Okay, this is all one thought that Jesus is working with. And then he says in verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Some of you need to hear that. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were, with, who were before you. And this is the Beatitudes in their entirety. Some of them, some commentators say there's eight, others say there's nine. doesn't matter what number you land on. This is what they are in their entirety. But there's something that we need to understand before we ever dive into the depths of these Beatitudes, and that is this. Each verse reveals where true blessedness can be found. Each verse that we just read reveals where true blessedness can be found. See, the Greek word for blessed here is the word makarios. The the word makarios is translated in your Bibles in a variety of different ways. Some of you, if I were to ask you by so hand, some of you would say it's translated in my Bible as the word happy. And some of you would be able to see that. Some of you, it's translated as the word blessed. But a more accurate translation of this Greek word makarios is that it does mean happy, but it means to be approved. So what does that mean when it means to be approved? Okay, I want to give you an example of back in 2008. In 2008, my wife and I, Kayla, we were dating. Um, we were on the brink of getting engaged. Uh, but before we got engaged, I went and I sat down with Mike. He and I went and we had oysters with his church. And then we drove back to the house and we sat in his driveway. We just kind of caught up. And he asked me about where Kay, you know, Kayla and I were in our relationship. And I shared with him. And I said, you know, I know for the two of us, we really would like to be married. But one thing that we think would be a huge blessing to us is if we received your blessing to do that. Now, now follow me, parents, okay? You're going to have a child. I'm going to have three girls, hopefully one day, that will have this same conversation with men that they might marry, okay? But what that guy was doing and what I was doing with, with my father-in-law is I was seeking his blessing to marry his daughter. And he gives his blessing based on my character, Hey, I've seen in you that you can handle things responsibly, so I know that if you enter this marital relationship with my daughter, that you're going to treat her responsibly. I've seen that you're going to be faithful to her throughout the past, you know, however many years of your life, and you're going to do that if you marry my daughter. He's judging my character, and based on the judgment of my character, he's giving me his blessing to marry his child. Now, he's a poor uh, judgment of character because he, he did give me a yes. Um, but, I say that kiddingly, um, but, but truthfully, it's going to be really hard one day for me to do that. But that's what's happening here. You're seeking the approval. Now, I wasn't seeking permission. I, I would like that, but I wasn't seeking permission. I was seeking the blessing. And that's what's happening here with this word, blessed. So I want to warn you, though. When you come to this word and you have the translation like happy, that's a very misleading translation. Okay, some of you are very familiar with how Scripture tells us you can't take out of it and add to it. But I would encourage you, and this is not going against Scripture, I would encourage you if your translation uses the word happy, scratch through it. Let's use another word. That's not taking something out and adding something to. It's just taking a poor translation of the Greek original Greek text and making it more accurate so that you can understand it as you actually read it. The, the word happy is misleading. Why? Why? Because happiness is a subjective state. 
You understand this. Happiness is based on or if not influenced by how I feel. It's based on or if not influenced by uh, my own personal opinion about life and how I view things in the world. It's based on or influenced by my taste and things I like or don't like. So happiness is a subjective state, but here Jesus is making an objective judgment. See, happiness comes from the Latin word or root word, hap, which is where you and I get our word happen, or happen, blah, 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 happenings from. We get our word happening from that. You know what a happening is? It's a circumstance. It, it means you're happy when the happenings are right. It means you're happy when the circumstances in your life are right. When you walk outside and it's a beautiful spring day somewhere in the mid-70s and the air is thin, right, and things are beginning to bloom, you feel happy. It's a subjective feeling that you have because you like this weather. When you walk outside and it's 30 degrees and it's gray and it's wet, you don't feel happy because the circumstances around you are determining and dictating how you feel. When the kids are playing nice together, you feel happy. When they're fighting, you don't feel happy. When it's payday, you feel happy. When your account's running thin, you don't feel so happy. If you're a Duke fan, today you're feeling great, right? If you're a UNC fan, you're not feeling so good today. That's what it is. It's a, it's a word that's based on how we feel. So when you're happy, the happenings, the circumstances are right in your life. And those things are relative. Everybody has a different set of things that make them happy or make them sad. But listen to what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying the world around you will have a joy that fluctuates based on circumstances. The world that you and I live in is a world that will either be joyful or not based on the situations of their life. But what Jesus is saying here is this is not true for the people of God. The people of God have a joy that the waves of the world cannot wash away based on the circumstances or situations that they find themselves in. In other words, the people of God are a blessed people. And this word blessed transcends the way that we feel. It comes from above. It comes from beyond you. It's a joy that sorrow cannot strip away. Anybody ever felt that? Some of you are familiar with a longtime member of our church and someone who's worked in our school for a very long time, Clayton McClure. Clayton came to school, I guess, about two or three weeks ago now and had an odd experience at school where he felt not right. And in the span of a week, he found out that he went from having really good health to now having leukemia. And as you could imagine, I hear the size in the room, as you could imagine... That's deflating news. I'm sure it was deflating for the McClure's, the kids, the family, the extended family, but it's also deflating for some of you who know Clayton and Heidi and, and their family that have known them for a really long time. I called the night that they found this news. I called his mom, who's also in our church. I called his mom and I talked to her and just had a conversation about this with her. We spent about 30, 45 minutes on the phone. And again, kind of like I told you with our kids or our student ministry, I was calling her pastorally to shepherd her heart and to pray with her and to care for her through this. I got off the phone, and I was, I was more encouraged than I care to admit. Like, this lady did so much ministry to my own heart. 
talking about how God is sovereign. He's not caught off God. We're going to trust him through this. Whatever he wills to do, that's God. We know that he knows what's best. He's going to look out for the best interests of his people. And I mean, I'm just sitting here like, how, on the, how in the world could you have this attitude in you as you're walking through this? I sent, I sent text uh, to Clayton that day. And that night when we corresponded, he sent me back the last text he said that night. He said, man, I just want you to know God is good. And I'm thinking, wow, that is a joy that transcends circumstance. That's what it looks like here in this word blessed in our text today. It's a joy that sorrow cannot strip away. And some of you, you've experienced that in and of your own life as well. But we're going to dive in to Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 today. And we're going to talk about this verse where it says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first question we have to answer is this. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? When Jesus says this to this group of men and women who are following him, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? What it means is this. It's to be spiritually bankrupt and to be fully dependent on God. That's all it means. To be spiritually bankrupt and to be fully dependent on God. It's the picture of a beggar who sits and pleads at the feet of others. That's what the picture is. This beggar knows that if he's going to eat, it's not going to be because of something that he provides for himself. He's going to eat because of someone else providing for him. It's a beggar who says, if I'm going to survive, I'm going to survive not because I can take care of myself. I will survive because others are taking care of me for me. This picture is a, a picture of, complete, of being completely destitute. It's being completely empty. I like to say it like this. To be poor in spirit is a consciousness of my emptiness. That's all it means. When you and I are poor in spirit, that means we have a consciousness of our emptiness. We recognize that in and of ourselves we have nothing to offer to God. It's understanding that even my righteous deeds are as filthy rags in the sight of God. It's understanding that even my best performances here on this earth are unacceptable to earn his favor, to earn his merits. It just means that I become aware of how absolutely dependent on Jesus I am for all things. But here's the problem, church family. Most of us don't realize how spiritually poor we are. And I say that not about the men and women outside of these walls. I say that about the men and women inside of these walls. Me included. That the problem with us is we don't really understand how poor, spiritually poor, we are. Maybe for you, you have a similar situation to me. When I was growing up and I started to hear about salvation, hear about Jesus, and started to kind of understand the ways of the church, if you know what I mean. Um, honestly, I would look myself in the mirror, and I, I might not say this out loud, but I believed it in my heart. I would think, man, I'm actually a pretty decent person. I don't mistreat my classmates. I have a good group of friends. I work hard. I have a part-time job. I go to school. I'm you know, present faithfully to school. I try not to bully people or make people feel bad. I try to do right by the world standards, by the moral code that has been written somewhere along the way. I, I don't cuss too much. Depends on the circumstance. 
I don't cheat on my test. Try to study. I don't lie too much either. Depends on circumstance there too. But seriously, I don't hurt anyone. And you start to think in and of yourself, I'm not a bad person. I'm, I'm a fairly good person by the world standard. But here's the problem, and I want you to meditate on this over the course of the next week, okay? Here's the problem, and I wrote it like this. It's not our wickedness that's destroying us. You know what's destroying us? It's our own perceived goodness. That's what's destroying us. For many of us, we have convinced ourselves that we're good because we're, we're comparing ourselves to someone else. We'll say, you know what, I know that I'm a sinner, but I'm not him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I know that I don't have everything together, but I'm not cheating on my wife. You know, I, I know that I, 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 could have, I have some things in my life that I need to work on, but I'm not addicted to drugs. You know, I, I know that I'm not like the, the example that's worthy of emulation. I get that. Maybe I'm not the perfect person, but, but I'm not doing that. I'm not going there. I don't hang with that group of people. So we start to feel better about ourselves because of our perceived goodness. It could be worse, in other words. That's the thought that we have. So we start to feel good about who we are. We, we have good church attendance. We have children that are successful. We serve the church. We serve our community. We're involved with our neighbors in different variety of ways. And what our perceived goodness does is it misleads us to believe that, 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 uh, that we're better than we actually are. It's the best way to say it. We start to think maybe there is some good in us. Maybe, maybe when we get before God, there is something that he will see, that we see in ourselves, that will earn us the right to spend eternity with him. We're not perfect, we'll admit that. But we're also not reprobates. But listen, church family, the poor in spirit recognize that the only thing they have to offer God is the same desperate appeal that the tax collector offered in Luke chapter 18, verse 13, where he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is the only thing that Trey Brinson has to offer God is a desperate appeal. Lord, look upon Trey and be merciful to me because I'm aware of how sinful I really am. Apart from you, O oh Lord, I can absolutely do nothing. What did Paul say? He said, oh, there's a lot of sinners in the world, but all the sinners, I'm the chief. He recognized his depravity before the Lord. I'm going to go over to Luke chapter 18, and I want you to hear how this parable unfolds real quick. It says this in 18 verse 9. wasn't prepared to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Here it is. It says this. It says, he also told the parable to some who trusted in themselves um, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. He said this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. That's what we just talked about. I'm not an extortioner or unjust, an adulterer, or even like the tax collectors. Think about it, God. I fast twice a week. That seems pretty plausible, doesn't it? Some of you don't fast twice a week. And yet this guy did. I give tithes of all that I get. Some of us don't do that. Again, seems plausible. But the tax collector, who was standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But beat his breast and he said this, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down into the house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What a picture of what we are talking about in the, here today. The man who's poor in spirit is the one that's received. He says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, the Greek word here for theirs is the kingdom of heaven is actually emphatic. It, it, it's better to be read like this. For theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. What, what is Jesus saying when he uses this emphasis for theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven? He's saying only those who are poor in spirit will enter the kingdom of heaven. Listen, church family, if you're still attaching yourself to the things of this world, the kingdom of heaven does not belong to you. If your affections are still stirred by the things of this world, the kingdom of heaven doesn't belong to you. If your soul is still stirred by the things of this world, the kingdom of heaven does not belong to you. If you think that there's any reason outside of the grace, the sheer grace of God, that you should be accepted into heaven, the kingdom of heaven does not belong to you. It's reserved for those who are poor in spirit. Now, what I don't want you to hear is that God wants you to feel worthless. Because God doesn't want you to feel worthless this morning. He created you, and he created you in his image. And when he created you in his image, he created you with dignity and with value and with worth. You are of supreme value to him. But there does need to be some sort of awareness and admission in, in our life of our own sinfulness and how spiritually bankrupt before him we really are. And in many ways right now, I feel like I am teaching like a bird who has no wings. Because I am just as guilty about some of this as some of you are. There are days where I go in my prayer life to the Lord and I feel like I have something to offer him. Or some reason he shall at least receive me outside of the sheer grace of God. And today I want to give you three things that I think will help you live as a man or a woman who emulates this life, who is poor in spirit. The first one is this, spiritual poverty is a necessity for salvation. We have to understand that. Spiritual poverty is a necessity for salvation. Listen, church family, salvation from beginning to end belongs to God. And some of you, you, you have no clue what that even means. Listen, the Bible is abundantly clear. No man comes to the Father unless the Father first draw him. The, the only way that you understand your sinful condition before him is because the Lord gives you the eyes to see it. So from the very beginning of understanding your need for a Savior, God's, God's doing all that work. Wasn't anything that you tried to do, any, must, any strength that you could muster up. The only reason you know your condition before God is because he gives you the eye to see it. So many people think that if I just go to church, if I give my offerings, if I serve people, if I forgive people, if I seek forgiveness from people, then everything's going to be all right. But the Bible says something completely different. It says that all have sinned. All of us have sinned. And we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And then it says, and because of that sin, the price of that sin is death. The only way for you not to receive death because of that sin is for your sin to be forgiven. And you can't forgive your own sin. It takes someone sinless. It takes someone perfect. It takes someone righteous to come in to forgive that sin debt for you. And that's exactly what Jesus 
has done. That's why it ends. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin has a payment, and the payment has been paid, and it's been paid by Jesus. It's through that free gift that we get salvation and forgiveness and eternal life. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Who was dead? You were dead. I was dead. The person next to you was dead. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the course of this world. That's what we do. We don't know any better. We just follow and do whatever the, the world tells us to do. Flow, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Come on, church family, let's not lie this morning. We all have once lived in the passions of our flesh. Some of us are still living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature, the Bible says, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But listen, but listen, but listen, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ by grace. Not your own works, not your giving, not your church attendance, not your status in the church as a deacon, as a spiritual leader, as a life group leader. By grace and grace alone through the finished work of Jesus Christ, you have been saved. You've been saved. Sir, ma'am, for you to receive salvation, it only happens when you fall flat on your face before a holy God and you recognize that there is absolutely no reason he should save you at all. And the only hope you have is that he would send Jesus to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And guess what? He done did it. He did it. And now it's a free gift for you if only you will receive the gift. So we incurred a debt that we couldn't pay, but God sent Jesus to pay that debt for us. So spiritual poverty is a necessity for our own salvation. But secondly, spiritual poverty is a necessity for spiritual growth. For those of you who do know Jesus and are walking with Jesus, spiritual poverty is a necessity for you to continue to grow in the likeness of Christ. When we recognize our own spiritual emptiness and we seek God for his help, that's when we start growing spiritually. See, the things... That, you know, you know this because we all feel it. There's times in our life where I feel like God wants me to do something. I just don't feel equipped to do it. That's the best position I could ever be in. You follow me? Because that's when I'm poor in spirit. God, I don't know why you call me to do that. I don't have the skills to do that. That's what Moses said. You want me to go talk to Pharaoh? I have a speech impediment. There's a million men you could have chosen. You chose me. I don't have the skills to do it. But you're my chosen vessel. That's poor in spirit. You remember Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 6. Man, some of you know this verse. Uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. I'm going to slow down. I'm sorry. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, this is Isaiah. He had a proper view of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That proper view of God led to a proper view of himself. Woe is me, spiritual poverty. 
For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And once he had a proper view of God that led, a proper view of, led to a proper view of himself, guess what that led to? A proper view of mission. Look at verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, this is Isaiah, Here am I, send me. I'm willing to go wherever you want me to go. I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. It's a necessity for spiritual growth. Humility allows us to see the world more clearly. But humility also allows us to connect with God more deeply. And only the poor in spirit possess that kind of humility. Spiritual poverty is a necessity for salvation, a necessity for spiritual growth, and finally, it's a necessity for being used by God. Now, obviously, I could resort back to Isaiah chapter 6 to show you that it is a necessity to be used by God. I could also go to the life of Moses and many others to show you that spiritual poverty is indeed a necessity for being used by God. This is what I want you to hear this morning, because I think some of you are going to resonate well with this thought. Some of our greatest ministry will come from our weakest moments. And some of, you, some of you have lived this life. Some of you are living it now. Your greatest ministry will come from your weakest moments. When I got on the phone with Miss Pat, told you about that phone call a moment ago with Clayton. Some great ministry she did to my life in a weak, weak moment for her. I thought about, I thought about the Lord some of you know a little bit about my story, but when I was called into ministry, the first like six sermons I ever did were funerals of people close to me, my best friend, my two grandfathers, and et cetera. But there was one night, um, early 2000s, where my grandfather, my dad's dad, died at about 11.30 p.m., and then about 30 minutes later, 45 minutes later, the next day, so technically two dates, but still the same night, my other grandfather died. So my mom's dad and my dad's dad died literally on the same night. And I remember going up to the hospital with my family, standing in that hospital room, kind of saying our goodbyes to my dad's dad. And as I walked out of the room, um, being a teenager that I was, I grabbed the door and I just slammed it against the wall. And I was frustrated. I was frustrated because I felt like, God, you're, you're good, but yet you're taking people that I love from me. I don't fully understand that. I was frustrated because one of my ambitions and one of my dreams and one of my goals was that my granddad, who was John Wesley Brinson Sr., my dad, who's John Wesley Brinson Jr., and my real name, Trey, is John Wesley Brinson III. I'm the most Methodist Baptist pastor you'll ever meet, by the way. <laughs> my dream was that my granddad would be able to meet my son, his fourth generation. I didn't even know Caleb at that time. So that dream was long gone and shot by the time that he passed. I felt like my ambitions and my dreams for life were stripped away from me in that moment. I remember walking down the hallway of that hospital. just couldn't hold myself together. just kind of unraveling a little bit. And my mom grabbed me and put her arm around me. And she said, Trey, I don't know why this is happening but I know that he's going to use it mightily for his glory one day. And do you know that in so many different moments, I've been able to use that story to minister to other people. Do you know that I've been able to empathize better with other people because I walked through that? 
Do you know that had I never walked through that particular night, there would be some discrepancies, if you will, in the ministry that God has called me to? That part of him orchestrating those events was preparing me to be the guy that God wanted me to be. And in some ways, preparing you for the guy that would lead you. God has a funny way of doing some mighty, mighty things in our moments of weakness. And some of you are here today and you're thinking, I don't know why the Lord's putting me through what I'm going through. And I don't know how he's going to use it in the future. But you can rest assured that he doesn't waste his energy and he doesn't waste his effort. And everything that he does is done not only so that you might know him more, but so that he might get glory from your life and in the lives of other people. So spiritual poverty is a necessity of being used by God. So how do we come before God as ones who are spiritually poor? This reminds me of an old hymn that says, Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. And church family, if we're going to be used to make an impact here in our community or even throughout the world, that's going to have to be the posture of our heart. Ones who are poor in spirit who come before God and say, God, nothing in my hands I bring. I have nothing to offer you. But simply to your cross I'll cling. And I know through your might and through your power, you're capable of doing more than I could ever imagine.